When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, what's up, Geekscapists? Welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. I'm Jonathan London, and if this is your first Geekscape, I like to sit down in the worlds of pop culture. That means movies, video games, comic books, uh, tech, uh, and sometimes music. And I like to talk to storytellers and people who create stories in that space and really get behind like why they do this and why they put themselves through uh, really what I call modern alchemy. You're taking something and making... You're, you're taking you know, your influences and you're making something out of it that didn't exist before. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot to be said about that. And I'm really fascinated by it, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, and this, if this is not your first podcast with us, uh, welcome back. <laughs> Geekscape's been around a while, and we've talked to a lot of storytellers. My guest today is a return guest. We last had Blake Harris on the show five years ago. He was the author of Console Wars, which was a book about... Uh, it was narrative nonfiction, and I suggested it to all of you, and continue to suggest it to all of you. And it's a narrative nonfiction, uh, r- real journalistic deep dive into the period in the late '80s, early '90s, when Sega, with their Genesis console, really took it to Nintendo's market share here in the U.S. And obviously, that means Sonic the Hedgehog taking on Mario one-on-one and um, actually cutting into the market share. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I was a kid when that happened. Sonic was my thing, and the Genesis was the first time I really saved up a ton of my allowance money to buy the Genesis. And um, so when Console Wars came out, I had to read it. I had to have Blake on the show, and then we've been friends ever since. Uh, Blake, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, <laughs> being a uh, big supporter, an early supporter of Console Wars. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for having me back on. What's crazy about it is that, for those of you guys who are listening right now, this is the second at-bat that Blake and I have had with this podcast. Uh, yesterday, we were in New York together face-to-face, and we just couldn't find a quiet enough place to record. So I'm still in New York. Blake is back in, in Queens, and uh, we're recording over Skype. <laughs> we're, like, recording over over the Internet. 
and we're within miles of each other, which is insane, but just goes to show I don't really have a place in New York quite yet where I can go to. I'm, I'm staying with friends, and the friends have, like, a six-year-old and a two-year-old and dogs, so that is not a quiet space. Um, and I don't really have another quiet place where I can sit and um, record a Geekscape, but here I am in the business lounge of the apartment uh, in the condo place, and uh, I think you might hear some kids here and there. There's a pool nearby. There's a basketball court nearby. There's a freaking bowling alley down here. What? But, yeah, dude, there's a bowling alley in the basement of this condo building. Wow. It's one of those, it's like one of those really nice ones that are in Chelsea, like, over by the west side. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty, pretty posh, but, uh, but this is what I'm doing. I'm sitting down in the, I'm kind of like sitting in a corner over here in their business lounge and recording a podcast with you, Blake. <laughs> Which is insane, because you're a few miles away. I know. Well, I feel closer to you, and I at least saw you yesterday for the first time in a couple of years, so that was very nice. Yeah, it was great having lunch and catching up, and just uh, really having a bro down that we haven't had. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the last time you were in LA was a few years ago for E3. Well, at the least last when, time I told yeah. you that I was in LA. I mean, yeah, well, that, that goes without saying, <laughs> you Hollywood types. But the last time we connected in LA was, was sort of uh, a year or two after Console Wars had come out, and you were at E3, and it kind of gave birth to this brand new book. Geekscape, as you're listening to this uh, this week, next week, Blake's new book hits stands. Uh, you should pre-order it right now on Amazon, especially if you're a fan of Console Wars. If, you're not, if you have not read Console Wars, throw that in the uh, checkout uh, with uh, this new book, because you're going to want to read both of them. The new one's called The History of the Future. It's Blake's deep dive into Oculus... Uh, them being sold to Facebook, and really the rise of virtual reality, which was something that 10 years ago um, wasn't really on our radars. Uh, how would you describe where we were on virtual reality 10 years ago, Blake? And obviously we want to talk a little bit about console wars and Sega Nintendo and just everything, man. Yeah, <laughs> when I get so down, yeah. <laughs> Oculus was founded in 2012, and I would say prior to that, virtual reality was essentially considered uh, like a technological punchline, like flying cars or jetpack. You know, it's like right. this thing that we've all knew from science fiction and from Back to the Future 2, but like that was never really going to happen. And the efforts to make it happen most recently in the 90s with uh, a lot of VR efforts were a huge failure financially and uh, creatively. So, uh, you know, it wasn't really on anyone's radar, which is part of what made the story so fascinating. Well, what were the hurdles in the late 90s? Because, I mean, even as a video game nerd and a Nintendo nerd, uh, we all remember the Virtual Boy. That that didn't really cut it. And it seems like uh, recently uh, a lot of the things, like even uh, the installation-based VR that, we, that we've seen uh, is all kind of like tethered. And, right. having a te- and having a tether in VR just basically means that you're going to sit in place and spin and shoot at things and you're still going to be using a controller for mobility, uh, which isn't really a virtual reality thing. It's just a video game with a cool headset is what it feels like. Right. No, it's a good question because some of the technolo- or some of the challenges, not even just technological, in the 90s um, have been solved or, you know, we've come far enough that that's why VR at least has, uh, you know, an honest chance here. And then some of them are still the same friction points of just, putting something on your head and getting people right. to try to do that for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours a day, whatever they want. Um, 
And and one of the interesting things is that, you know, I think that in in a nutshell, the new book is about how Oculus um, basically resurrected the consumer virtual reality industry, of course, with a lot of credit going to a lot of different people and other companies. But that's the main narrative. And if you talk to those people and, and when I ask them, like, all right, let's say you guys started Oculus 20 years earlier in, you know, the 1992. Um how would it have been, you know, how, how successful would you have been? And they all said that they would have failed. So that adds an interesting element to the story where even, you know, to talk about the word that you used earlier, alchemy, um, there is timing is a big component of alchemy um, or whatever, you know, you've got the mixture that you're putting together. And uh, so even these brilliant people who were successful in this endeavor, at least successful enough to start a company and sell it to Facebook for $3 billion less than two years later, they don't even think that they would have found much success in the 90s. And a lot of it is, um, you know, graphics. Um, yeah, everything then, looked like GoldenEye. Right, but then that's also, <laughs> you know, then it gets to, yeah, compared to today, the graphics of VR in the 90s were terrible. But then again, as much as I love GoldenEye, like those graphics compared to games today are terrible. So at least it was on par with what you were doing at the time, especially the like in location, the uh, on location VR stuff, like at malls, like Dactyl Nightmare. Um, I think a lot of it uh, kind of venturing into the more technical details is, is has to do with tracking because, you know, you could get a VR, you know, a VR looking headset or something that you're using to cover your eyes and, you know, look at a virtual, look at a computer image. But unless you actually track the, you know, the the user's head movements. So when you move left, it, you know, the image stays still and you see more leftward of that image. It's basically just a TV strapped to your face, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're just basically scanning the screen and the screen has right. been short, shortened for your purview. Right. So it's like, it's the tracking that actually creates a big part of the sensation that you're there because like in real life, when you turn your head, everything you're looking at doesn't move with you. It stays in its place and you see something different. Um, so that technology really um, evolved a great deal and became much more affordable due to cell phones. Um, you know, and, and I think the, the first thing that anybody at Oculus would thank is the developments made in the mobile space. So that was a big part of it. Um, that, wait, wait, that, that's crazy. Cause you wouldn't, I mean, for somebody, I'm, I'm not a techie. I'm just not, but um, the technology being the same thing that keeps our GPSs up to speed. Yeah. You know, so, so, the, so the Pokemon Go geocaching technology, that stuff is the thing that is used in virtual reality to scan I mean, our head movements. It. It's like, right, I mean, a, 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 layman, a layman Cro-Mag version of it. <laughs> you, you have to tell, you have to use the Chrome Magnum version of the explanation <laughs> for me. <laughs> but it's but yeah, it's really cool that um, at least now uh, smartphones and and mobile the mobile space technology seems so different than virtual reality um, technology. But but the, the the origins of this generation of VR is so much based on the mobile technology. And you can um, tilt, and you can tell tilt, and you can tell direction, exactly, and yeah, exactly. no, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and and. Uh, you know, but I, but I would say that like one of the more interesting things is wh- one of the main characters of this book is Palmer Lucky, who was 19 years old when he founded Oculus. At the time, he was living in a trailer, and as I described to you yesterday, and on the inside jacket of the book, I love this visual of like at the beginning of the book, he is this teenage kid, homeschooled, living in a trailer, and the trailer basically looks like Walter White's meth van, except instead of meth, it has like 
20 different virtual reality headsets at various stages of development. Um, that's, ins- wait, that's insane. Yeah. And, and um, you know, so, so he, like, you know, it, it has readily admitted in interviews and talked to me a lot about how fortunate he was with the timing, how fortunate he was to be born at this point or, you know, to be working on at this point post cell phone um, industry. But at the same time, um, talking to him and other industry experts, you know, basically his invention, the early prototype of the Oculus Rift, which set all this into motion, could have probably been made five years earlier. So, and the reason it was him and not Sony or Microsoft or some other, you know, more inventor with more experience than him or someone and, resor- and resources. Yeah, more resources than a nineteen. It's usually the the trailer. most important thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like we were talking about yesterday. Just nobody cared. Like VR was a punchline. If I had told you, like, if I had called you in 2012 before I even knew you, and been, hey, Jonathan, you don't know me, it's Blake Harris, but I'm uh, in starting this VR company. You would have laughed at me. Like VR, that thing died in the 90s. It was such a flop, and uh, and so Palmer, lucky, and you know maybe maybe at most like a hundred other people used to congregate on this uh, web forum called meant to be seen 3d mtbs 3d and this was just where these few people that still cared about vr and believed in vr would share their projects and help each other out and uh you know find the their the few fellow supporters who were interested in this stuff that was like a reddit it's it was like a reddit forum it was like one of those you know it's just like a group of people that just didn't. That they're the ones who cared, and yeah. uh, and what were, what were they doing? Were they were using cell phones? What kind of technology were they using? Were they using carryover technology from the '90s and the 2000s to to put this stuff together? Were they using failed Sony Microsoft that's entries into the, into the place? Especially because one of the first um, you know subcultures that I got introduced to as I got to know Palmer was this uh, this hardware modding culture. Um, you know, modding being short for like modifying, and sure, um, sure. it's like this hacking tinker um, culture that um, you know I knew was out there, but I guess I didn't realize how strong the community could be um, on places like the Ben Heck forums or even a web uh, a forum that Palmer started called Mod Retro. And so, you know, at first when I would think like, wow, like this nineteen year old kid is the one who who did it, who pulled off this thing where no one else could. And even if it, he was a beneficiary of technological advancements, like why him? It seems so unlikely. And then as I start to really break it down and understand his interests, it actually starts to seem much more likely, um, you know, not living through the scars and the failures of the 90s probably helped to some degree. But, but it actually began for him because he had this web forum mod retro where him and a bunch of his closest now lifelong friends would take um, old, usually consoles um, or, or handhelds, you know, like Game Boy, N64, Genesis, Nintendo, uh, NES, Super Nintendo, and they would um, try to portableize them. Well, I guess the, the handhelds are already portable. Well, sure, sure, but they, would, but they would take like an N64 and try and make it a portable. Exactly, and it would just be yeah. like, you know, they'd be solder, soldering stuff and hacking it up and, you know, very much like, self-taught school of engineering um and and it was like you know it was very fun for them it was collaborative it was a competition like oh i can make it smaller than you and so you know virtual reality like you said being like virtual boy in the 90s and some other failed products was something that was um inherently fascinating to to palmer lucky and his friends um whereas you would think that the normal um person born 
in the late in mid or you know he's born in 93 um like wouldn't really have an interest in old things but he had that this interest in old consoles and and then basically modernizing them and making them cheaper um Mm -hmm. because he didn't have a ton of means himself and uh then you know the end result was after three years of work and eventually a uh, a part-time lab technician job at, at um usc's uh mixed reality lab which is like one of the few places in academia where vr was still being researched um he invented this headset called the oculus rift and he started a company called oculus and as he described it on his original website that never really saw much of the light of day this was his tilt at trying to make vr work where it had failed so much before and as we know um it was a very successful um blake uh the Palmer reminds me of, and I know that Ernest Klein did the intro to your book. Uh, he did the yeah. forward. Um, he reminds me of the kid from uh, Ready Player One. Like you're, you know, in Ready Player yeah. One, he's got he's got all his gaming stuff to enter the. Uh, what's the name of the place in the oh, in the Ready Oasis. Player One? Yeah, the Oasis. The Oasis. Yeah, he's got all that stuff to enter the Oasis in his van, like in the junkyard or wherever he lived. And like, uh, he reminds me of that character yeah, from Ready no, Player a ton One. Of parallels. I remember, I I, I spoke with. Ernest Klein, because his work was so influential on so many of the people that I interviewed throughout the course of this book, um, and also myself. You know, I would I probably wouldn't have written this book if not for Ready Player One, because it sort of showed me um, how what this future could be like, and and in, done in an accessible way. And I shared my first chapter with him, and he was almost like laughing and like, "Wow!" Like I didn't like he he knows Palmer pretty well, but he didn't even know Palmer's backstory and how similar it was to. Uh, to Wade Watts and and uh, yeah, it's just a nice little uh, fiction meeting nonfiction twist. Um, but Palmer was nineteen and he's living he's living in the van or just using it as his lab. Um, <laughs> good question. Because like, was, how does a nineteen year like where? I'll, I'll sound like a like an old grandmother. Where were his parents? You know what I mean? All right. So um, his so the the van was parked in the driveway of his parents. Um, who had uh, the bottom floor in a split house, uh, a two-family duplex. duplex in Long Beach. Um, okay. And what had happened was... They ain't living there anymore. You know, sort of like uh, like the character in Ready Player One, uh, Palmer was very uh, obsessed with his interests, more so than school and other, you know... <laughs> other such endeavors um and and he you know he went to he started taking college classes very early at like 16 um clearly a very brilliant guy but uh he he was becoming much you know more and more interested in vr and this technology and his and um was basically like looking to drop out of school and his parents um didn't want you know basically kicked him out of the house if he wasn't willing to go to school but being loving parents they didn't want to like totally kick him out and make him homeless so they bought him um this used 19 foot trailer that he was living in and then actually that was like probably a year prior to starting oculus and then when he finally decided to um start oculus and drop out of school they sold the trailer so there was this interesting period of time where he starts this company that within a matter of two months goes on kickstarter and raises a few million dollars and sort of becomes the darling of the indie gaming tech world and for a period of time, he was like technically homeless. I mean, he, 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 he yeah. Uh, let, let me get the timeline right. So yeah. he, he has this three-year period where he's starting Oculus, knowing that he's going to go into this around the age of sixteen, seventeen. He's already started taking college courses, 
16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, he's a year, two years into starting Oculus. He's, he, well, I would he just clarify and say that he decides to, 2012, but he was like, you oh, know, working on VR stuff for three years. Yeah, but, but, but he decides to drop, yeah, but he just decides to drop out of school like two, three years, two, two years into this endeavor. He decides to drop out of school and um, because of that, almost loses like this, he, he gets put into this, uh, his mobile home and then the thing gets sold out from under him and now he's got no place as soon as he's going to do the indie version of going public which is a successful <laughs> Kickstarter yes yeah and so, so during because uh, I think uh, our own Derek Cranavelt and some of our Geekscapists were excited about that original Oculus uh, Kickstarter and were a part of it that's around the period of time that Lucky was homeless yes and you know I, <laughs> oh, man. Like, uh, you know being homeless is a very serious issue so uh, i feel you know i should say he wasn't living on the street he ended up he was living in his parents garage for a couple of weeks before they but his lab was gone right but his lab was gone and he was not happy about that and one of the i remember early on you know palmer's a very interesting eccentric and polarizing character and i remember early on you know one of the first glimpses that i really got into you know what kind of a different guy he is and, and what a fun character he is, is that there is a version of this narrative that is kind of sad and pathetic, you know, um, getting kicked out of his home and then getting kicked out of a trailer and living in this garage and not really knowing what's going to happen. And that was all true. He was worried about his future. But but like he loved living in that trailer, like the, his eyes light up when he talks about it. He, t- he described mm. it to me as like living in a spaceship and you have everything you want around you. And mm-hmm. you know, I don't think, feel like that would be my experience living in a trailer. So I was like, all right, this, this is a fascinating guy. But yeah, um, while you know, it's, it's a really exciting first few months of the story in real time, uh, like basically like May, June, July, August 2012, Palmer has a uh, long-distance girlfriend who uh, he's still with, and she was in Colorado, and she moved out during that time. So she actually had a home where while he didn't have a home – um, just a lot of fun stuff, fun personal stuff going on while him and then his eventual co-founders were starting Oculus. And that is all in this book. Uh, Geescape us again. The book's called His- "The History of the Future." Uh, go put it in your uh, uh, go 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 find it online and pre-order the book. Uh, it's on Amazon. There's going to be a audiobook version that's uh, released. I think day and date release on that one, Blake. Yeah, yeah, it's the same day, February nineteenth. And who uh, who's doing the audio reading? Um, a guy named Stephen Graybill. Cool, cool. Um, you've got that, and obviously Geekscapes. I want you guys to pick up Console Wars if you haven't read it already. I don't see why you wouldn't have because we've been talking about it for five <laughs> years. Um, and uh, one of my favorite memories was uh, a few a year or two afterwards because Blake and I met in person at Comic Con. Uh, five years ago, um, and that's how we met one of our four former writers, Eric Francisco, uh, as we all went to have lunch together. And uh, Eric was supposed to meet you, and we met, and I met Eric through you. Yeah. But and, and Eric and I became very good friends, and he ended up writing for Geekscape for a long stretch, yes, and, which it, is funny it, because because <laughs> I'm like, wait, who did I meet first? I met you first, Blake, and then a year after you you brought. Uh, Tom Kalinske over to my booth and I almost had a, uh, a heart attack. The guy who created Sonic and He-Man and all of that 
like standing in front of me i got to shake his hand <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty incredible moment thank you yeah tom was and still is you know one of my biggest role models um he he would tell you that jonathan i did not create sonic i led a team of people um who did and and that's you know what i think I, i'm most proud of with console wars is just the ensemble element and of course even in the book you know get you know telling the story through the team there's still so many more people who don't get mentioned and who who are a part of this and that's you know another one of the, the challenges and fun parts of this book is that it is such an ensemble story as it, most things in life you know even palmer being a you know like the proverbial uh lone genius or whatever it is like none of this would have happened if he didn't um, have some luck uh, connecting with legendary game maker John Carmack and with uh, a bunch of entrepreneurs, including you know, like who ended up one of them became the CEO. And you know, it's just it's just really fun to see all the different steps of of how things come together and wh- and wh- whether they lead to success or to more complicated situations. Well, how do how do the uh, how do the geekscapists know John Carmack? I mean. We, you and I talked about him, but yeah. how, but how, I mean, for those who he's not a household name for, why should he be a household name? He's the person who came in with his video game money. Uh, by the time he's an icon, and he goes into a partnership with this nineteen-year-old kid. Actually, no, no, he doesn't. Which ends up leading to a lawsuit. But uh, <laughs> wait, wait, okay, okay, put me in. Put put it all in order for me. Sure. Um, well, so first of all, I'd say John Carmack is as close to a household name as you get amongst game developers, um, which, okay. to your point, is not, you know, my mom does not know who John Carmack is, but John Carmack is one of the co-founders of id Software. He's the man largely credited with creating the first-person shooting shooter genre with games like, um, you know, Doom, most famously, and Wolfenstein, and Quake, and all these games that really push the limit of technology and genre, and, um, you know, he, he's known as a very cutting-edge guy, a very interesting, eccentric genius himself. Um, he started a rocket ship company back in um, in the like, like ten years earlier. And so, actually, what what he told me was that you know he would crunch on these games for two, three, four years, and then after finishing a game and shipping it out, um, in this case, what was the game? In this case, in 2012, it was Rage, um, mm-hmm. and he would take like a little like an R&D vacation, I think is how he described it to me, or like a little research period where um, he wouldn't necessarily be doing this for professional sake, but, you know, he's such a lover of technology. He would see what's, he would pick a, a project and sort of get into it. And one time it had been rockets and that led to him creating Armadillo Airspace. Um, and then in 2012, he was just interested in virtual reality. And basically, like we were talking about earlier, he just kind of really hadn't thought much about VR since the 90s. And he his thinking was like, surely in the past 15 years, the technology has come so much further and there must be amazing, awesome stuff I can go out there and buy. And then to his shock and horror, there wasn't like there were a few consumer VR headsets that most of which cost one to two thousand dollars um and and in john's words were like really crappy and then mm-hmm. there was also vr headsets that were being used by the military or by academia that would cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars which was really like you know not meant for consumers um and so john was just like a little bit shocked um because uh, you know he he realized when he started looking into it like yeah the technology from cell phones alone has helped make could make this so much better um and so he's looking at prod- products made by sony 
a company called Imagine. Um, and, and then he ends up hearing, a ba- hearing about um, a hardware hacker named Palmer Tech, uh, um, who who's known to frequent the MTBS 3D forums and uh, then looks into Palmer's work and contacts Palmer and asks if he can borrow one of his headsets to potentially um, demo a VR version of um, Doom 3, which which his company was going to be re-releasing, to, uh, if he could borrow Palmer's headset to potentially demo it at E3. And his plan originally was to show off three or four different headsets with the same demo and show one headset that you know showed what you know good latency would look like and one that showed what a high field of view would look like, which was Palmer's, and and you know demo all these different things. But then over the next month, as he was trying you know trying out these different headsets and making some tweaks and trying to optimize the software, he just realized that the headset that Palmer made was so much better than what else was out there, and let alone so much cheaper. Um, and so John demoed the the Oculus Rift prototype at E3, and that's really when uh, like mainstream or at least gaming mainstream um, attention started to turn towards virtual reality and this fascination that um, you know probably caught the attention of you said Derek like like people like that people like myself really started to brew, um, and then coming out of E3. Whereas we noted yesterday, um, a lot of people incorrectly credited John Carmack as the inventor of this headset. And to John's credit, he warned Palmer in advance that that was likely to happen, even though he would do everything in his power to make sure Palmer got proper credit. But uh, anyway, coming out of E3, Palm, there's a, there's not, this is a minor early spoiler, but there's a lot of, you know, early Palmer's offered a job to go work at Sony, uh, which was basically a dream job to him. Um, mm-hmm. And then that became something that he passed up because he uh, met a group of entrepreneurs and was persuaded to continue with his own company with Oculus that he was, you know, launching and to to try this himself. And then he did, and they launched a Kickstarter, and they were super successful. And okay, in in the entrepreneur, uh, those entrepreneurs only found him because of John Carmack's presentation at E three. For the most part, like that's really what got the ball rolling to the Absolutely. point where where I mean, he didn't have to take this job. Exactly, like yeah. they were, um, you know, not, they they didn't they weren't directly introduced from John Carmack, but right. they heard you know a friend of a friend. They sought him out. Basically, um, I like one of the characters told me. Uh, I always liked it. He he made a comparison. You call them characters, but these are real people oh, yeah, that you've interviewed people. for right, this so book. One of the right. scientists at Oculus, the way he put it to me was that it was like. Um, like in Back to the Future too, when uh, like uh, when Mark, what is it? Marvin Berry calls up Chuck Berry. Uh, oh no, yeah. no, no. It was in Back to the Future one, and he goes, "You oh, yeah. want to?" He goes, "He goes, get a load of this," and he holds the phone up. Yeah, exactly. I, I just always have Back to the Future two in my mind, but yeah, and like basically, this guy. <laughs> that's because we're li- that's because we're living through it. <laughs> this guy, uh, you know, one of the few people who had stayed in the VR industry was a friend of a of an entrepreneur and. You know, um, product guy named Brendan Arib, and he calls up Brendan and he says, "Brendan, you gotta check out this new headset J- John Carmack demoed at E3." And Brendan's like, "Oh, VR? Like, you know, VR's not not happening." Um, mm-hmm. But he's convinced, he's persuaded to at least take a look, especially after he goes online and he reads these articles and he sees these demos. And then he has a dinner um, in uh, June 2012 uh, with him and like six of his entrepreneur buddies. And Palmer, and they persuade Palmer to uh, not 
you know, not sign with Sony and to do his own thing. And then over the next few weeks, they convince Palmer to do his own thing with them. And, uh, wow. and then a month after that, they, or a month and a half after that, they launched the Kickstarter. They did what? They launched the Kickstarter. No, oh, launched the Kickstarter. So, um, so that gave them their seed money and, uh, and they were off and running from there. Right. Um, so John Carmack and, and, and Lucky were never actually partners. No, they, um, you know, they they talked a lot and they were collaborative in the sense that John is a software genius guru and, and had made a lot of modifications to the Doom 3 game that he was releasing to make it work well with VR, which includes things like, you know, doing the chromatic aberration and these other technical details that optimized it for Palmer's headset. And, you know, they were just this perfect peanut butter and jelly pair of hardware and software. Um, and so... The, like, the, I would say, I, I, you know, I want to make it clear that it was a mutually beneficial relationship, but it wasn't sure. a formal relationship in any way, other than the fact that, that John publicly said he was going to make his game compatible with this headset that Palmer was building. Um, but then, and that, and that becomes significant because John continued um, developing that game and others for Oculus until his company... Um, id software which had been which was then owned by Zenimax or at that point had already been owned by Zenimax um, then didn't see any money in VR and didn't see anything beneficial in this relationship with Oculus and told John to stop working with them and then a year after that Oculus sells to Facebook for three million dollars and Zenimax comes out of the woodwork and sues Oculus and Palmer and Facebook and Brendan Areeb and wants millions of uh, billions of dollars billions of dollars but did they win that lawsuit is it still going on? It's still going on. They won parts of it, but they didn't win the part. Like, um, they didn't win any of the claims that the, that you've seen in the press that like the technology was stolen. The claims that they won were mostly about like false designation, meaning that like when Oculus went to to, to investors, they had an image of John Carmack in their deck because he was consulting. Sure. They made it seem like you know basically stuff that I would say is all true, um, but. The, the, the charges have, with each appeal, have been reduced, and I think that they just reached some sort of settlement. But um, I found it to be a very merit-free case. And um, question for somebody who's like a, like a consumer, like one of the Geekscapists. Um, if I have like a PS4 VR mm-hmm. uh, or an Xbox One VR, like I've played, you know, uh, Derek and, and company are always talking about um, how they're playing on vr and uh even like a ps uh 4 pro um i told you yesterday that i that i was not into vr and remain not into vr until until i went and checked out one of the void installations oh there's kids running by hey kids (laughs) (laughs) um i went to check out that void installation down in downtown disney and did the whole star wars void experience and it was untethered i'm running between rooms that are being reskinned over and over again it's rumbling there's heat there's levers that I'm pulling. There's physical things that I'm holding, like blaster guns. That was the first time that I was like, wow, this this VR is incredibly immersive. It's a full entertainment experience. I'm not tethered to my living room, swinging things off of my shelves. Right. Um, how different is the technology that maybe uh, Palmer came out with or in those early years before Facebook? Uh, and how, how close is that to like something that would be in uh, a PlayStation VR 
or on an Xbox One or that I experienced in the Void? How different is that stuff? Sure, it's a good question. I mean, it's all a spectrum. Um, uh-huh. The like the Void, what the what the guys at the Void do, and the installations that they have are. And I hope the geeks gave us know about this stuff because it's really yeah. cool. You can go and do Ghostbusters. They have an original story, but the Void installations. If you're in LA, New York, or I think Florida, they're really worth going to check out. Those are some awesome. Yeah, it's pretty much like VR. as good as it gets in terms of what's being done right now, in terms of both the content and also just the technology. You know, it's it's like you said, it's like a big. I don't know, 40 by 40 space that you're navigating through and they kind of guide you, but that's, you know, it's, it's an ultimate experience compared to the, you know, at home experience. You're, you're not tethered. Like you're not, you're not sitting and spinning, uh, out of fear that you're going to run into the walls. It's so tightly mapped to the walls to like the centimeter that I really felt like I was there and the room can rumble and there's heat. Right. Very, it was, it was incredible. I really recommend it to all the geeks gave us. And I've talked about it on the show before if you're a long-time listener. But how different is that technology? Is is that Oculus? Is that something? Or is that a competitor? Are there competitors? I think that they do use Oculus headsets. Um, it, it's, it, it's either that or HTC Vive headsets. But I believe that they're most recently using Oculus headsets. And, the, I mean, the answer is that it's way, way, way better than what Palmer was demoing and what he sent to John Carmack. But what made Palmer's thing so special was that it, you know, had surpassed whatever um, abstract threshold it needed to, to make people go, holy shit. Like it, it was enough that it, that it made people feel like they were there. So, um, yeah. you, you know, probably not that, that, that illusion of being there probably didn't last as long as it would with the void, but at least it was enough that it actually could trick your brain and make you feel like you were in a computer generated video game world. And if I'm playing on my PS4, or my Xbox One, like the the VR for something like that. How does that compare? Because that's a tethered system, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the like the kind of stuff that Palmer was originally doing was meant for the PC because he was a PC gamer, and PCs generally, are more, or at least the way like souped up PCs are more powerful than a PS4. So um, you know the PS PSVR, which I think is amazing and awesome especially for the price you know that's probably not at, it doesn't have as high fidelity and as great a quality as the rift or the HTC Vive, both of which don't share as much of the quality of the you know the whole void experience so it's just different tiers um but i think it also gives you a sense of where we're headed to it you know in two months from now oculus and facebook are releasing uh the quest headset which is the first really untethered six degrees of full freedom headset um and the one that they think or hope is going to really hit the mainstream okay so that one's untethered and that oculus uh one is set up for what's called it's for for pc only or is that something that sony and microsoft are going to get in on sure so right now um or at least let's even say what the while Palmer was still at the company and what they were doing, you know, they basically had two types of VR experiences. There was the tethered P, uh, VR experience connected to a PC, which was high end. That was the Oculus Rift, and then there was mm-hmm. the mobile VR, which was like essentially putting like uh, like snapping in a cell phone, a Samsung Gear, a Samsung phone yeah. into the Gear VR. I, I've never been sold like, on that thing. You know, it was a cost between like fifty and a hundred dollars. And, uh, and then you instantly, your smartphone would be your screen and your 
portal into that world. Um, and those were like the two areas that they were focused on. They were primarily focused on the PC in the PC, PC space. And that was like, you know, when they'd have each demo that you'd read about in the tech, like each new demo, which was amazing. Like that was the PC side of things. And what's funny is that Legendary, who now has the rights to your book, Console Wars, who's making it into a series, uh, my first experience with the, the cell phone version of that is a couple years ago at, uh, at, at, at Comic-Con. Ooh, uh, a couple years I'm in the business center and there are kids running around. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> let me get my motor thoughts back. The uh, Legendary, who were our neighbors at Comic-Con, they had uh, the cell phone uh, experience with a movie like I think they put out uh, one of the Guillermo del Toro movies and they wanted you to walk through one of his amazing sets uh, that they had brought into a VR and they, they had it on one of those phones and you, you you could just download it on your on the app and then drop it into the cardboard setup and walk around it and I was never really sold on the whole cardboard setup thing I was right. like okay because it, it is a very limited experience you are just moving and scanning your head back and forth um, but this non-tethered thing that comes out, you're saying it comes out in a few months, um, how are people not going to destroy their living room <laughs> with this thing? Yeah. Is, there, is there a part of this technology that also scans your room? Because uh, Microsoft and Sony both had pretty advanced stuff with like the Sony Move. And, uh, and is that, am I getting that right? Because Xbox also had one of those where it was motion control stuff and it was on the tail end of, right. it was as a result of the Wii. But remember the Sony Move and yeah. the Xbox's version would scan your room. Yeah, the Kinect, and right? The Kinect, yeah. that was it, the Kinect. And the Kinect, you could move her about your, your space and see uh, a, a, a version of your living room in the playscape on your TV, it seems like those technologies together, an untethered headset and something like the, the, the Connect would work pretty well to give you a void-like experience. Right. But well, is, I mean, but the Connect is abandoned. That stuff is all... It's like, we got to bring that stuff back now. Right. Well, I mean, the, I guess the, the non-super satisfactory but somewhat short answer is that... Um, like at least with the Rift now and, and most of these other headsets, you are setting up cameras and tracking devices in your home. Mm. So there is a way for it to know what's around you. you. You can fiddle with the settings or, you know, the games try to take or the experiences try to take these things into account. Um, the companies are very conscious of not wanting lawsuits and having you crash into things. Um, but but you're also getting a key point, which is um, towards the end of the book. And I'll, you know, this book is different than console wars because this is playing out in real time. So I, a lot of the stuff's in the news. So it's not like spoilers. It's not really like breaking news here or anything. But like yeah. the the main difference between the Oculus Rift and their primary competitor, the HTC Vive, um, is and or at least especially was when it came out that <coughs> the the Vive was room scale. So it wanted to optimize your. I think up it, it alleged a fifteen by fifteen space. Um, so you can you know use a whole room or use your apartment or whatever. Whereas the Rift very intentionally um, went for just a seated experience, so that you feel like you're there. You can move your head and turn, look over your shoulder and all that, but where you wouldn't be asked to be moving all over the place because of safety reasons and also just because of you know not a lot of people have big uh, big homes or apartments, especially um, in in some Asian countries where they expected the VR to be popular um, and, and real estate is, is even more expensive. Um, so it was like a differing philosophies because, you know, 
Oculus basically came onto the scene by promising the cutting edge of VR, and then the consumer product they put out was not as cutting edge as it could have been. Um, but they had their reasons for it. But again, you know, like I don't it, that had an impact on the market. <laughs> and you're saying that this new version that's coming out that Facebook and Oculus are putting out here in a in a, in a bit, um, that that is untethered. Is it also a seated experience, or is that something that you're supposed to get up and go around? That's a good question. I, I mean, it's not a seated experience, but it's also one that... Because it's time to lock up the China. you got to lock up the really nice dishware. Yeah. Yeah, lock up your China. Lock up the, yeah, I mean, this one is not tethered, but, but content-wise, I, I would say that they've strategically tried to limit the amount of movement to some degree that you would, mm-hmm. would have. Um, and, there, and there's techniques that you can use, things like redirected walking, where you, you can trick a, a brain into thinking it's moving in a lot more space than it really is, so that you're, you know, literally your footprint is smaller than it, than it might seem like it would be. Um, but, but yeah, like, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how people use these. And, and um especially as we sort of transition more towards the convergence of virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, and, and, you know, whether this becomes something that people will wear in public. I mean, the end goal and the, a big part of the reason why Zuckerberg, you know, personally, like, led this deal and wanted to buy Oculus is because, as he had it in his presentation, like, 10 years from now, or I guess eight years from this point, like, he, he envisions a basically something that looks like a pair of eyeglasses that lets you do VR and AR. And just for listeners, um, you know, they actually look the difference in the most rudimentary form. A virtual virtual reality is when you're fully immersed in a computer graphic world, and augmented reality is when computer graphics overlay the real world. So more like Terminator Vision, more like I can look at you. Right. And like in like sort of a black mirror sort of situation, it would say like Jonathan London, here's his address, here's his likes, you know, like or whatever. Here's his like, followers, yeah. Yeah. Versus a fully immersive virtual reality experience where everything around you is is virtual world. Um, they're not going to be contact lenses. I mean, that's part of it too. I still don't even really understand all this because, like, I am a glasses wearer, and I I hate wearing glasses. I I'm not. <laughs> I'm curious how much. People want to wear glasses. Dude, dude, I think I told you yesterday, I've spent a week sleeping with a CPAP machine over my mouth. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm finally, like, trying to check off the list of things that I've needed to fix in my life. Yeah. And uh, and my sleep apnea is one of them. And anybody who's shared a room with me at Comic-Con understands that it is a violent experience. The snoring is so bad. <laughs> um, but not this Comic-Con, because Johnny's got a robot that helps him <laughs> breathe at night. And uh, and it has been, uh, you know, I've done it for four nights so far, and I, uh, no, I've done it for six, and um, and four of those nights have been successful. Two of those nights, one of them was hellish, and I ripped it off and was like, no. But but as a filmmaker, I've always thought that augmented reality was going to, you know, obviously 3D is something you put glasses on your face and you watch a 3D movie and this and that, but I see it going beyond that in augmented reality where we're watching a movie and because of the fact that we order the tickets on our phones and the phones are also where we ordered our books or we ordered our music and this and that and it knows us very well that the the advertisements and the product placement in the movie that you watch is different than the person next to you because right. we have an augmented screen, not necessarily just a 3D screen, but you have a screen where if Blake and I go to the movies together, 
Blake's getting ads for Pepsi and I'm getting ads for Coke. Yep. But we're watching the same movie through our 3D glasses. That's augmented reality. Right. And virtual reality just means those ads are in the computer game that we're surrounded by. <laughs> right. I mean, and you can um, do targeted advertising in virtual reality yeah. too, which is something that people are concerned about with Facebook being the owner. Oh, of well, Oculus. Second Life. But like, but but, but you're right. Wait, did you say Second Life? Yeah, I mean, Second Life was yeah. is is quote unquote virtual reality. You just didn't strap it to your head, exactly. but it is it is a different reality that a lot of people got immersed in. And there's there's still a lot of those online communities. Lord British is a big part of that. Um, remember Richard Garriott? I was a big Ultima fan because yep. I grew up in Austin and Origin and Ultima were like the big thing, and because it was local. But Richard Garriott, I think, has a pretty vibrant online gaming experience either him or, or uh, Chris Chris Roberts who created uh, Wing Commander I think those guys have always tried to make online PC MMOs in that space that are pretty immersive second life but with questing I guess right I mean in a way most uh, like a lot of computer games and video games are attempts at virtual reality or are virtual reality but without the glasses in fact right. one of my favorite parts from the uh the, the 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 $3 billion Zenimax versus Oculus trial was like Zenimax tried to make the point that John had made some statement, John Carmack had made some statement years ago that like everything he'd been doing had always been virtual reality in some form. So they tried to basically be like, aha, we invented virtual reality. And John, you know, has been working on this all these years. So you owe us money. But yeah, I mean, like that <laughs> is always what a lot of this is. And um and that certainly speaks like the, like what you're talking about the second life and the those sorts of social experiences is is a lot of what attracted Facebook because because mm-hmm. Facebook was a very unlikely suitor for Oculus um, because Oculus was at that point almost purely a video game company like if 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 someone had heard that they were acquired most people would have assumed it was either Sony or Microsoft or maybe Nintendo people weren't really thinking about um, the tech companies but. As you also mentioned, like there's a lot of advertising opportunity um, in in literally being able to shape people's realities. So um, there was a lot of reasons why Facebook wanted to get in on that. Right. So um, it, you gave me a copy of the book yesterday. I'm excited to crack it on the on the plane back to Los Angeles. But you wrote a few things. You wrote. Um, and this is maybe this this can be a warning or or something not a warning because Geekscape is by this book. Uh, but if you were into console wars, this is not just console wars 2.0. You wrote, "I warn you in advance that this book lacks the warmth and nostalgia of console wars, particularly the final 100 pages." But I'm pretty sure this will end up being the best thing I ever do with my life. Are you not going to have kids? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm messing with you, because man, yeah. If you have book. kids, if you have kids, let's hope Uncle Jonathan doesn't show them this <laughs> little signature. Yeah. yeah. Um, that be, that being said, um, you, you you single out uh, the the last hundred pages, and you also say that this is the best thing you you'll end up doing with your life. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> Just as sure. your friend, uh, and having not read the book yet, like what are you talking about? Um, so to me. You know, the final hundred pages of the book almost feels like a completely different book, and and it's um, it, you know, it, it, it toggles between two stories. It toggles between um, you know, four years. It basically, like we flash forward a couple of years after the acquisition, 
and Oculus is now part of Facebook, and and we toggle between the launch of their first product, the Oculus Rift, the consumer version, and then eventually um, the, the the firing of Palmer Lucky, the founder, um, and 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 you know, and and the po- political aspects related to that. And by po- political like politics and political aspects, I don't mean office politics or that, although that is part of it. But I mean literally that he is a Donald Trump supporter and that played a huge role in his exit. There were other circumstances and um, a fake news article that we talked about at length yesterday that I can get into here. But like, you know, through both of those experiences, just the actual selling of the product of of a product and then, then how someone with a certain political view um, experienced Facebook and, and ended their tenure there. I feel like this book gives an, incredible unvarnished look at Facebook, unlike any that I have read really since like the, since the accidental billionaires. Um, and, and given the outsized role that Facebook now has in our day-to-day lives with over 2 billion users, I feel like it's just really important. Um, and, and it, especially like, you know, Facebook often, you know, publicly and internally, they talk so much about openness and transparency and they have signs to that effect hung all over their, their campus. Um, but when, you know, news broke that, that linked Palmer lucky to supporting a Donald Trump organization, although it was reported in an inaccurate way that made it seem way worse than purely being a, uh, a supporter of a politician who's not popular amongst a lot of his colleagues. Um, you know, the process that followed, and, and his eventual firing was just so the opposite of openness and transparency. They never told employees what was going on. They 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 exiled him from the office for essentially six months. Um, they kept telling employees that he kept asking for more vacation time, and then mm-hmm. eventually, after six months, um, they notified employees that that he was leaving the company. They didn't even say whether he was fired, whether it was his choice anything like that. And they just never provided any information. Uh, and I feel like the handling of that situation says so much about um, our current political discourse and especially about Facebook as a company and and things that we should be concerned about or at least um, aware of as, as they continue to have a larger and larger role in our lives. Now, you're friends with Palmer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've spoken to him um, almost every day for the past three years, though, of course, after he was fired, he was not allowed to talk about a lot of things with me. But yeah, I mean, I, I would I would call him a friend a lot, as I would with a lot of the people in this book. When you when you talk to someone so frequently over a period of time, you get to know them and, and, and in most cases like them. <laughs> but you but but I mean, if he's you don't agree with his politics, I mean, Correct. but you obviously you can still call him your friend and and i i have a lot of problems with people who uh are like hey if you did this just unfollow me right now oh, because yeah. I, I, I i i i just think that that our discourse has become so uh you know binary that it's like right. i'm over here and you're over there and i can't talk to you if you have a differing opinion that i mean the way i describe it on the show 
into friends is that we are all in the middle of a human centipede <laughs> where we are only swa- <laughs> I mean we're all we're, I mean like th- your Twitter is just a, your your Twitter is just a simplification of it right you're, you're only following you're only following people who you agree with and eating their excrement and then you're only f- excreting it and feeding it to the people who follow you because they agree with your opinions and w- we all just find ourselves in the middle of the human centipede and you know what you don't want to be in the middle of the human centipede. No, you only want to be in the front. Whether, regardless of what, what you would label my relationship with Palmer, he was someone that I spoke with and speak with a lot. And, and, and although I was pretty shocked and, and, it, and in the moment a little surprised maybe and disappointed that he, to learn that he was supporting Donald Trump when I first found out in you know, like May or June 2016, I also wanted to use that relationship to do the opposite of what you're describing, that this was someone who I felt that I could talk about anything with. And I wanted to understand why, you know, what did he like about somebody that I found, I find Donald Trump uh, despicable in so many ways, but clearly he feels differently or at least doesn't prioritize things the way I do. And, And in those conversations, I felt like I learned a lot and also got a better understanding of why a lot of other people um, see an appeal in in Donald Trump, and so that was valuable. that's been very valuable to me. Yeah, my worry is that there's a lack of altruism in a lot of the choices to follow him. Is that you follow him because you agree that what he's saying is right for you? But um, you know, we did talk yesterday about the idea that like a lot of people saw Trump as a culmination to our foreign policy of being involved in a lot of different places and pulling us out of places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and uh, and the worry is at the same time they're gonna lack the diplomacy to do those things properly yes I understand the goal of pulling us out of a place like like Syria currently but um, it's ignoring that you broke it you bought it Yep. politics and we're it's lacking the diplomacy of, ext- of extracting ourselves properly and so it goes back to the idea of this um sort of idealism of like oh yeah the, this is just going to happen pretty simply it's not going to happen simply if you were less idealistic and a little more altruistic and realize that these things have to happen in steps and it's a long process right um you wouldn't be such a bull in a china shop. No, I know? totally agree. I mean, um, like, to me, one of one of my many concerns oh, with, with Donald Trump is that, you know, as as it seems, you know, I, I don't follow the politic, the day to day politics that much, and most uh, you can't. You'll you'll you'll, you'll, you'll destroy your brain. I've tried not to so much, but but just from like a distance, it's it would seem that. I, I remember being when I did follow it a lot more. I was very upset by how I felt like he was treating our allies and and the impression he was sending and his um, rhetoric about breaking agreements and basically using our whatever leverage we have to basically say, all right, well we we don't like the terms of these agreement anymore. Almost like a you know, like an NFL player saying, yeah, you know, I did sign this contract, but I'm outperforming it, so I, I want a different contract. Um, and, and you know, they we're all skeptical of whether or not he's on the take, you right. know, and just a, 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 a mouthpiece for Russian policy. I mean, there's a million ways you can go about it. I, 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 I don't mean to interrupt, but ultimately, it shouldn't get you fired. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. It's like, um, but my point with that was just going to be that I worry, even if I, even if I agreed with more of Trump's policies 
I still think the way he goes about it, like you were saying, the, the type of diplomacy he does is ultimately um, very damaging to the future. Because I don't know, like if you just break agreements now, why would any country trust an agreement you sign two years from now, even if it's not him or if it's a different president? Like sure. if, you've, if you're proven yourself to be a country that um, or you know, an organization that doesn't stand by its agreements, um, then, then like, you know, the, you break it, you bought it thing. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I guess I, I like the idea of accountability and, and a lot of the stuff he says and does is the absolute opposite. But, but to your point, but also um, being unilateral. Cause you know, the, the first Gulf war under Bush senior was a unilateral. It was a unilateral operation. Now we're talking about an invasion of Iraq an invasion of Afghanistan and, I, I feel like we're in the third term of the Bush presidency, <laughs> the Bush Jr. presidency. I mean, honestly, it's like this is just a dumber, more tweeted version of the Bush presidency where you're just doing whatever you want, yippee kayang around the globe, and not worrying about 100 years down the line with what we're left with. So you're just going to pull yourself out of these environmental agreements. You're going to pull yourself out of the unilateral agreements with your... With with your with with fellow companies uh, fellow countries, you're going to pull yourself out of uh, being on stable ground with the United Nations. <laughs> you're going right. to pull yourself out of all, and it's just like, dude, what are you doing? That's what makes us suspicious that you are absolutely a Russian mouthpiece and enabler. That being said, to bring things back to our conversation, it shouldn't. Your politics should not get you fired. Um, at least not from behind so many closed doors. Right. Well, at least and not. You know, I think I would. I would probably feel a little bit differently about it if, if it was sort of uh, what I would describe as like a beyond the pale sort of politics. Like if you know mm-hmm. someone who was legitimately like a white supremacist or uh, an outspoken anti-Semite, and you know those are political views, and I guess everyone's yeah. Hate, to hate them, can but, get you fired. <laughs> but like, hate, hate, hate can get you fired, and trying to spur sure. hate can get you. That can get you fired. That's that's called uh, workplace uh, harassment. <laughs> it's like you're probably gonna have to work with some people that you are verbally hating about, uh, hating on publicly. Yeah, I can see how that gets you fired. Right, but what well, went on here is just a difference in politics. Here, where 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 supporting Trump, being like one of the sixty million people who voted for him makes you synonymous with hate and and so i'm sure that the 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 colleagues at facebook who are reacting very negatively and some are even crying and wanting him to be fired immediately like they are to me they're acting hysterical but they're doing it because they have this like they think that they're responding to someone who's being very hateful um but like I said, there's 60 million people who who voted for this person, and also remember, like this was at the time we didn't know how his presidency was going to play out. Like, it's I certainly might disagree with someone who voted for him, but I don't find that to be the defining feature of them, and should not their employment should not be based on whether they supported him. Or in this case, we should say he did make a ten, uh, nine. $9,100 donation to an organization is what spurred a lot of this news. And this hula baloo is what the last 100 pages of the book are. Right. Um, uh, not not I, exclusively. Yeah. But, 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 it but not exclusively, of course. Um, and, and like, you know, I think one could say, well, that has nothing to do with virtual reality. Um, and there's some merit to that. But again, like, I think, I think about this in terms, you know, to me, console wars more than anything was like 
a story about people and also aim to capture this zeitgeisty feeling of 1990 to 96. And like you were talking about earlier, where you and I could be in the same movie theater and you see a Pepsi ad and I see a Coke ad, or maybe it was reversed. Like, like these, like Facebook is a company that wants to make those decisions for us um, Mm -hmm. and control the reality that we see. And so I think that learning more about who they are, the type of organization that they are, the type of people who work there, or, and just basically their processes for making decisions and how, and how they behave are, is super relevant to um, the future of technology and and particularly virtual reality. Like I find, I still find all this stuff to be connected. Not I, well, yeah. I mean, it's very obviously connected because it's the same. It's a founder of Oculus, but just thematically, I see a big connection between the things. Yeah, be wary of who we put the control of these these tools. Uh, whose hands we put these tools into right. um, because they, they could just as easily be used against us, especially yeah, they're shaping our reality, now they're going to be shaping our virtual reality uh, and I think for a lot of people who are facing the realities of social media addiction, of which Facebook is a large component um, they're finding it to be mentally, emotionally uh, and physically uh, more daunting than possible, I mean in the past I you know, or currently, I, I I can admit to levels of social media addiction, and those things are directly tied into depression, loneliness, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I'd be surprised if geekscapists who are listening to this right now didn't uh, think that their social media habits aren't you know aren't dangerous in some level to their societal habits and, and whether or not they're being. Uh, you know, hermit-like. The only people who should be hermit-like are Blake Harris yeah. when he's writing another book. <laughs> but yeah. Um, that, the, the, you know, Blake, this is all awesome. I love having these discussions with you. And Geekscape, it's, um, I had so much fun reading Console Wars. It, but, but obviously that was a serial that I was excited to swallow. Right. I was so stoked to, to read that book. And it is one of my favorite books of all time. It's, it's fantastic. This one, is, as I admitted at the top of the hour, is not a subject matter I'm really enthused about, but Blake J. Harris wrote it, and if he treats it with even half the uh, approach that he, that he used on Console Wars, then I can't wait to read this thing on the plane I tomorrow. I I'm super, like, uh, super stoked about you it. Know, the first 300 pages are super fun, and, and all of it's like, kind of fun, so it's not, it's not a downer book. Um, just the end is not at all what I expected when I started reporting on it, and and and, and it is a bit of a downer. <laughs> right, but you you know you've just given them some sugar. Now it's time for the rest. Right. <laughs> Here's yeah. some medicine. Um, if things do uh, continue with lawsuits or uh, the merging of technologies, corporations, etc., uh, is the paperback book going to have to have addendums to it or? Or or changes, or will you just move on to a two point oh? Because it gets because because as you said, you were in the midst of this, right? I mean, it gets to the heart of what has been like like this experience was so different than writing console wars, and not just because I was dealing with a major big (laughs) organization like Facebook, um, whereas with console wars, I was minimally dealing with Sega Nintendo because most of the employees weren't even there anymore, but. But yeah, this story was happening as I was writing it, and I didn't. And you know, like originally, I didn't know how heavy the book would be on Oculus versus other companies and other players in the space. But what I found was that like every day, and I worked on this for 
basically four years. And, and like, you know, every day on the sites when I'm visiting, like VR sites, there's like some new, like, you know, greatest thing ever. And I don't know what's real, what's going to pan out. I'm interested in all of it. And sort of as, as this, as the scope of the landscape widened, I felt like the best thing I could do was to narrow the scope of the narrative. Um, and, and almost thinking about it more like Mad Men, where if you were going to tell the story of advertising in the sixties, instead of telling it from 10 different agencies, you tell it through one, but you can still tell the story of what else is going on. Um, and so, you know, I, I turned in my, my latest draft or the draft that resulted in the book in your hand in December. So only like a month and a half ago, um, there's already a bunch of things that I want to update for the second edition, which will happen if, you know, if, and when we print, you know, sell a certain number of copies. Um, and then I'm sure that by the time the paperback comes out, which is, you know, typically like nine months or a year after the hardcover, I'm sure that there's going to be additional things that I want to add addendums, little changes or things that now t- take on more significance that I would want to provide readers with more insight into them. Um, so this book is also like much more of a living document in that way whereas console wars i sort of sent it in i felt like all right like done <laughs> next well um you know what a, a paperback version of this with brand new addendums just means that you'll have to be back on geekscape yes <laughs> and dude if you come to la to talk about this book let's go to dinner because i loved having lunch with you yesterday awesome. uh and catching up man so geekscape is the book it's called the history of the future um it's out in a week but go ahead if you're listening to this on the day of release like throw it all in your pre-order if you're listening to this week two weeks down the road a month down the road a year down the road or if this is just something like you, you fell upon and you're new to geekscape Go pick up the book. It's out. Uh, you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't read Console Wars, throw that in your checkout bin as well. Um, this book is amazing. You can also read more of Blake's uh, writing on Slash Film. He's got this uh, partnership with Paul Shear, former Geekscape guest Paul Shear, right. who does the podcast, How, How Did is, This Get Paul Made? Paul is the nicest man in Hollywood, I have to say that, because people Dude. think he is, and he actually is. He is really Yeah, Paul, guy. Paul's awesome. But he, uh, he does a podcast called How Did this get made and it's about really crappy movies <laughs> and and what's funny is paul's podcast he just uh sits down and they talk about how these crappy movies got made uh blake then goes and gives them the console wars treatment of having to interview these filmmakers or have them on the podcast with paul and he and, uh, and actually interview them about probably the biggest failures of their careers yeah. or may have derailed their careers and that's a really sticky interview dude it is well i actually i contacted paul because i was a huge fan i didn't know him but i said you know paul your show is amazing and it's hilarious but you never actually explain how the movies got made because they basically they're improv guys and they just riff on how bad and yeah. stupid movies are. it's more of an exclamation how did this get made yeah, like, how, you're how actually did, wanting to know how this got how made how did junior which, get made how did um, Kazam get made like who was thinking this is a good idea let's put lots of oh out. man what's great is that is if you guys have read console wars that bit on the chapter on the Super Mario Brothers movie is a taste I mean, yeah. of things to come because okay. that was a great chapter I never knew that Tom Hanks Dustin Hoffman those people had been considered for the role or that they actually had a working script that really was a nice script that just never saw the light yeah. of day if anything console wars is uh, is not so much a Sega Nintendo book as much as it is just a book about an Eastern versus Western culture, and or at least Japan and American culture and the conflicts between them, the approaches between them. Because I found those those 
bits to be the, the, the best revelations in, con in console wars that weren't directly linked to nostalgia. Yeah, thank um, you. I mean, I, I intentionally try to strip any nostalgia from my approach and writing to console wars, but people always tell me it's such a nostalgic book, and obviously they bring that to it, and that's awesome because that's why it, you know, it appeals to so many people. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I think I've told you this before, and I've said this a lot in interviews. Like I, I write everything I do f with my grandma in mind. Like how could I get her interested in Sega Nintendo? How could I get her interested in the making of a bad Mario movie? And like you know, it's usually about finding the characters and and uh, breaking it down like that. But like you know, for the, to the geekscapers out there, totally understand if you've never tried VR, if you have skepticism about it. But I think that you'll like the book, um, or at least, you know, I always try to get out a bunch of excerpts because I want people to only spend their money if they think it's something that they will genuinely like. So I want to make sure people kind of know what they're getting into. So I'll, so I'll get some excerpts out over the next couple of weeks. Geekscapists, you have your mission. Um, it's been awesome having Blake on the show, man. Thanks, John. Uh, hilarious that we are now doing the podcast virtual, virtually when we added yeah. in reality yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I find it appropriate and poetic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you guys can follow Blake on, he's on Twitter, he's on Instagram. He may not be on Facebook much longer once this book comes out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but he is. Uh, go find him and, uh, and, and tell him you love this book and, uh, and are a fan. Go follow him on social media. Uh, Geekscape, as you can always find us at geekscape.net. We're redoing the site for Comic-Con. You'll find us at Comic Con 2019, right there. Uh, and um, and if Blake is at Comic Con, he should come and sign some copies of the book at the Geekscape booth. Um, obviously, uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, and um, and we're trying to revamp some new things. So uh, stick with us. If this is your first Geekscape, I really appreciate you listening this far. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We got tons of them in the catalogs going back to 2006. Wow. Uh, if only I had been smart enough to get in a mobile home and start working on VR, but I didn't have <laughs> neither the pa I didn't have the patience, discipline, or intelligence to do so. Um, but I started a podcast, and I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, anything you want to add, Blake? No, just thanks so much. Um, I'm a fan of you and your show, so this is cool for me and fun for me, and I look forward to coming back, um, hopefully soon. Love you guys. Uh, love you, Blake, and Geekscape forever. Over and out. Peace. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.